We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'm going to give you something here this morning. <clears throat> As we've been doing the gospel, I've wanted to do this for a long time. This gives me a chance. I'm going to give you what's called a chronology of soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, soter, to save. Soteriology is the study of how God saved us. Uh, it is all, also, we could call it, uh, remember what was the old Ralph Edwards show in the fifties? This is your life. And it is, this is your life. It begins with, he granted us grace in Christ from all eternity. Second Tim one nine two, they shall reign forever, eternity to eternity. And we're there in between. We were part of God's workmanship of what he was doing. And so I'm going to give you 25 points, but not all this morning, okay? And um, the first four are what prepared you by God to be saved. And then the next five are once he brought you, what did he bring you to about the body of truth the, the rock he left for you to be saved. And then the next nine points are about what happened to you. When you trusted Christ, what took place in the ledger of God? And then the last points, points 20 through 25, uh, what awaits you? The third section ends with death. Now, what awaits us after death? And so it is from eternity to eternity. And I'm going to give you not what my reason thinks. I'm going to blame it on God. I'm going to tell you exactly what God said about his dealings with us. Number one, where you start at is called the doctrine of election. We got that. There it is. Second Timothy 1, 9. He has granted us grace in Christ from eternity. Other words that are used are the words elect, the word chosen, the word proharizo. Pro meaning begin, harizo, horizon. Proharizo or predestined means that your boundary was marked off before you were ever born. You were predestined. Uh, it means this is what's called the decree of God. That God did not in the Bible, he's not in a tennis match with Satan going back and forth. That God had a plan. It involves the angelic creation, Lucifer's fall, the physical creation of the earth, Adam's fall, the fallen world to the flood, the Tower of Babel and rebellion after that second chance, the setting aside of the nation Israel and Abraham, Genesis 12 all the way through the uh, fall of Israel as they reject their Messiah. And then the gospel goes out to the whole church. Now we're in Romans through Jude of the New Testament, all the way to the tribulation period. And before that occurs is the rapture of the church, the judgment of the world, the kingdom of God, the last final test of the world when Satan is loosed, at the end of a thousand years, the world's rebellion, the dissolution of all matter, when the elements melt with intense heat, and then the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, 
the family reunion of the final judgment, hell and the eternal state. And that is where we shall reign forever. And so there's your entire Bible, okay, in about 30 seconds. But it's a sweep, and God had it all in a plan, just like when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. He had a plan that would begin with these two young people, the collision between their families, their coming together, the tragic death when they're in that tomb One's dead, the other doesn't realize he's not dead and kills himself and then rakes up, sees he's dead and they kill him. They're just dying all over the place. And they wake up in a cross on top of each other in the tomb, reconciling the families, and we sign off. And so Shakespeare had it all in his mind, and it unfolds a page at a time. Christ was slain, the Bible says, from the foundation of the world. What do you think about that? God saw it in one glance. And so, this is called the decree of God. Uh, predestination has the idea of whom he foreknew. This is in Romans 8. And foreknowledge doesn't mean that God knew that you would trust him as Christ. No. This means that God had an eternal love for you that was bestowed on you. The Bible says of Israel, uh, thou I have known among all the nations. I knew you. You were mine. The Bible says of, uh, of Israel, uh, has God forsaken the people that he foreknew? That doesn't mean that God would know that a couple of 75-year-old people would have a kid. No, God knew them, his people. But when he who had me set apart, even from my mother's womb, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul said, God knew me and had a plan for me. Whom he foreknew, that he knew you and he called you by name. Whom he foreknew, these he predestined. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. So from his foreknowledge, to his glorification, God has had a plan for you that unfolded, and he will not lose one. Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me, the elect, they will come to me. That's called efficacious grace. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. That's called justification. And I will raise him on the last day. That's called glorification. So from one end of eternity to the other, God had a plan, and that plan will not be jettisoned. When I was at seminary, I had a professor named Dr. John Hanna, and he made the statement once about predestination. And he said, predestination, election, divine calling, the foreknowledge of God of whom he would save. He said, that is given to us not to perplex us. Because I know what you're probably saying, boy, that's kind of hard to grasp, as if other points of theology are just very easy to grasp like the Trinity and the Incarnation, no problem with that. Yeah. All the things of Scripture. People say that's confusing, and I say, did you think it wouldn't be for God to explain to you things that you've never thought about? You actually think the divine mind will open to you like a Rubik's Cube? It'll be no problem? No, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so he said, John Hanna once said that the doctrine of election is given to us, not to confuse us, 
but to humble us. Why me? Why you? Were we just the smartest people in Denton? Look around. No, we weren't. Some of you stupid guys, just stand up right here, okay? Thank you. Now, it's to humble us. And secondly, it is to secure us. Do you think if God chose you, gave a son to die for you, called you, saved you, do you think he's going to drop you? No, it secures us, and it also brings us to the point of adoration, to say, uh, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. They awe us. And so that is where your salvation began. It wasn't that God was for you, Satan was against you, and you voted with God. No, that's not what it means. It means Satan was against you, you were against God, and God overcame your will to convert you and to bring you kicking and dragging into heaven. That was God's grace. Uh, another point, don't see it like two circles in opposition. God's sovereign will, man's choice in opposition. No, that's not it. It's man's culpable choices. And around it is the sovereignty of God. Did God have a purpose in Judas betraying Christ? Yes or no? Yes. Did Judas freely do it? Yes. Was Judas guilty? Yes. Was Judas exonerated because he was part of the plan? No. Did Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem? Yes. Did God bring him and raise him up to do it? Habakkuk, yes, he did. Therefore, if God willed it, Nebuchadnezzar is without culpability, right? Wrong. He is seen as guilty, but he is within the sovereignty of God. God can have his cake and he can eat it too. And that is the way with our salvation. I took him as my savior because of his eternal plan. Leave it there. Don't cancel out the beauty of God's grace because you are a 2.3 phys ed major, okay? Let it ride and just worship. And after you finish worshiping, then think about it. Number two, it's called depravity. We were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. If you don't believe that, it's because you're single and you have no children, okay? Yes, they come out smoking cigars. And so that is called original sin. We originate in sin. It is not culture. It is not the id versus our ego. It is sin nature. We go astray, David said, from the womb. Uh, Paul puts it like this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned 
aside. There is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous, that's R. None who understands, that's you. None who seeks, that's S. All have turned, that's T. R-U-S-T. Rust. Man has rusted. He is immovable. Man, um, Romans 5, 12, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He was our federal representative. When our father sinned, the family sinned under him. And so we are all guilty. Uh, total depravity talks about first the estate of man. Our estate is we are guilty and we cannot change that. We have been caught on tape. We've been caught on video. There are eyewitnesses. They've got, God's got DNA on us. He's got fingerprints. We're guilty. Uh, extent of sin talks about our mind is darkened. Left to ourselves, we will not comprehend the things of Christ, the Bible, the atonement, um, the imputing of our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us, resurrection. Spiritual ways are foolishness to the natural man. He can't understand them. So noetically or mentally, man is darkened to the gospel. The smarter you are, the more darkened usually you become. And then man's will is frozen in unbelief. His will is not free. He is a natural born sinner because your will is determined by your desires. You choose what you love. As I said before, very rancorous illustration, but true. God to man is like dog feces. He doesn't struggle with eating it because his smell, his taste, his touch is so offended by it that he will not in any way be made to turn to it. Our will is attached to our desires. The only way we will turn loose of our hatred of God is that if he can change us and make him desirable to us. That is called divine calling. And so man's Will, his emotion, his mind, and his body are cursed, and we fall apart. Amen? You look awful. Okay. And then lastly is called the expression of our sin. Anything that this creature, this child of the devil, this son of disobedience, this child of wrath, who is of your father, the devil, there is nothing that we can touch that we will not screw it up. Marriage, femin femininity, masculinity, gender. Could we ever screw that up? All you got to do is have a mirror. We mess that up. I found out up in uh, Sherman, Texas, in the bathroom, the high school, they have litter boxes. Did y'all hear what I just said? They have litter boxes for the little female cats to pee in. Let's close on a word of prayer. Yeah. That's the advancement of our day. He will mess up the home. He will mess up the government. He'll mess up the arts. 
He will screw up education. He will screw up uh, economics, business. There is no invention he can make that he will not turn to his own ruination. That is man. He is like the ultimate dysfunctional child. All right. So, estate, extent, the effect is that he's dead. He is dead. He desires not and he will not turn to God. And that's why, as you look at the Bible at the time of innocence in the garden, of conscience up until the flood, the imposition of government after the flood, whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, the setting aside of the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, to the giving of the law, to the giving of grace, to the coming of Christ in the kingdom, at every single dispensation of the Bible, it is marked by two things, the patience of God and the resistance and the disobedience of man. So by the end of your Bible, two points are lucidly clear. Man is a rebel. God is merciful. And the only reason your Bible is this thick is because of God's grace. If God were like you, this is all you'd have to read. Adam would have sinned and everybody would have been gone right there. So that is human depravity. Left to yourself, heaven will be a very lonely place. Number three is called divine calling. Romans 8, 29, whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, he justified. There is what is called a general calling. Many are called, few are chosen. The Bible says God has overlooked times of ignorance, pre-Christ, the idolatry and all that. He overlooked it. But now he has commanded men everywhere to repent, having fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. Now God has commanded men to repent, and there is a fixed day that this period of grace will end. Do you all believe that? History is not going to go on. It is determined by God in a revealing of the end. And so that is general calling. Efficacious grace is whom he called, he justified. They will come. I've given you the illustration before of like walking on the edge of the Grand Canyon and the mist is there and you can't see. And there is a mile long drop off if you step too far. And you're doing cartwheels, round off, flip-flops, you're standing on your hands, you're having a good time because of the fog you can't see. You don't know that you're an inch away from your worst nightmare, but you're having a picnic because you're blind. That's the state of man. And then all of a sudden, the wind comes through, and it blows all the fog away. And now, for the first time, you see the reality of who you are and where you're standing. What do you think you will now freely do? You will jump the other way as quick as you can. That is what's called efficacious grace. It's when God takes those of his sovereign pleasure and goes, and all of a sudden they smell their sin, they see their sin, they're aware of it, 
and they are conscious that there is no other help that will save them. And now the person of Christ looks beautiful. And so divine calling involves conviction where God creates despair in you. You're guilty. And then there is illumination where he moves your eyes to the only one that can save you. And now Christ is an aroma of life unto life to those who are being saved. Uh, to those who are perishing, he is foolishness. But to we who are being saved, he is uh, the life of God. And so that is what divine calling is. We tend to have a delight in sin and a despair towards God. God has to switch that to where we have a despair towards sin. And then when we hear the gospel, a delight in Christ. All right. And that is a work of grace. You can't talk a man out of it. You can't threaten him out of it. You can't put him in a, a home for degenerates and fix him. You can't penalize him. You can't put him in a penitent injury to make him penitent. There's nothing you can do. You have to strike him dead, attach him to the living, and raise him up again. He's got to have a soul transplant. That's the only way. And so that is what God had to do with you to bring you to himself. And then you have what is called repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25, Timothy, be gracious to those who are in opposition. If somehow God might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive, and that's the Greek word for a zoo, that you are captive to do his will. And so repentance is not something man has. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift. They said, Peter and them, whenever, well, when Peter came back and talked about the uh, salvation that was given to Cornelius and the Gentiles. The, the early church said, well, God hath granted repentance to the Gentiles. I'll be darned. Paul said to the Philippians, to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It is the bestowance of God's mercy to grant you repentance. Metanoia is the word for repentance. Noia means the noetic, the mind. Meta means to change. Metanoia means that you radically do a 180. You delighted in sin and detested God. And all of a sudden, you detest sin and you delight in the Savior. That is a divine miracle. That's why there's an old point with uh, Reformed Calvinism that you have to be regenerated before you believe in the gospel. That conversion comes first faith comes second. I would disagree with that on semantics. I don't think that you are regenerated that you might believe. I don't think we have uh, converted non-Christians. We're in around. All right. I think what you have is the divine doctrine of efficacious grace, that God begins the conversion process in you where you detest sin and you delight in Christ. And then you willingly change your mind and you come to him. And so that is repentance. It is a sorrow from seeing oneself in the crucible of divine holiness. 
Paul talks about the sorrow of the world that produces death. That's where you're only whining because you got caught. Divine sorrow leadeth unto salvation, where you realize that the problem is you. And the origin of your problem is God. And you now turn from it and go back to him. Well, those four things, election, depravity, divine calling through conviction and illumination, and repentance, those are the four things that God had to do to you before you became a Christian. Uh, when I look back at my Christian life, when, I, when you look at it in the rearview mirror, which is the best way to see God's plan, I can see in my life that there was a slow, gradual process where God broke me. Uh, we sing in one of our hymns, to us grace that taught me first to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Uh, what's that other song? I know whom I have believed. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus in his word, creating faith in him. Not bad for the 19th century. That's what faith is. Point five is now God has to give an object of faith that you believe in. Uh, Steve Poe, without Jesus dying on the cross, could a repentant man be saved? No. He would have no object to trust in whereby he could be forgiven. He would simply be a weeping individual going into judgment. Now, what this is called is the incarnation. Incarnate in flesh, the union of God and man. It has to be a man, a real man, so that he can live out the righteousness that we did not have. But he has to be God so that he would be able to live that out. And so it is this hybrid, this unique person. Paul said, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, God who was revealed in the flesh. First thing that heaven said when Jesus was born, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling, lying in a manger. Swaddling is when you're a newborn. He's just come. You'll find a baby in swaddling, lying in a manger. Don't put your kid in a donkey's feeding trough, okay? But that's where he was put, as low as you could get. And he said, a baby lying in a manger, that is Christ the Lord. Did you dig? A baby that is God. A man that is God. God didn't just appear to us as a man. He entered into humanity in the womb of Mary, the holy thing within you. Mary came across John the Baptist's mother that was five months pregnant. Mary had just conceived. John the Baptist heard the voice of Mary when he was in the womb of Elizabeth. What did John do? He jumped with joy. 
Not bad from a zygote. That's what it was. A holy beginning. And he leaped because he's the last Old Testament prophet and he leaps with joy because the object of the Bible has come. Glory to God in the highest. You'll find a baby, Christ the Lord. Man, God, Messiah. The God-man. Do angels know their theology? And their biology? Yes. And so that's what was the... Uh, the coming into humanity, the incarnation. You ever have chili con carne? Chili with meat? Carne, meaning flesh. Bornless, what is it? God in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. It's the greatest idea in humanity. And so, God came to live, and the reason he came to live was not simply to show us perfect humanity. That was a purpose. But if Christ had come and at Gethsemane, if he had said, Father, not my will, but oh, I don't know. I don't know about this cross. Nobody likes me. Nobody cares that I do it. They're all going to take off. Then they're going to make fun of me. Then they'll lie about me for 20 centuries. Now I'm going to pass. I think I'll go on to glory. If Christ had not died, could you have been saved by his physical perfect life? No, you couldn't unless you're a liberal. Okay. No, he had to die. Uh... When he was a little baby, Simeon looked at Mary and said, uh, a sword is going to pierce your soul. You're going to see this boy die. And so you had what's called the substitution. If Christ had not died, it would have been our worst nightmare. Not only would conscience have convicted us, not only would the law of God convicted us, but now Christ. Would anybody like to emulate Christ? For five minutes, we couldn't. But this perfect person became a spotless sacrifice. And that's what he had to become. And that is called substitution. He made him who knew no sin. Christ had no cognizance of what sin was. Never done it. Knew about it, but he was innocent as a... Whatever, he was clean and pure. He was, uh, says, he that knew no sin became sin, or, or God sinned him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Answer, you. Put your name there. That's it. And so, matter of fact, I found out I inspired a song. I didn't get no money for it. I said that years ago. I said, when he cried out, God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God could have answered with your name. And there was a woman out there that was a songwriter. And she went, hmm, that was brilliant. He could have answered with your name. Made a load of dough, and here I am. <laughs> but that's called substitution. And he was a penal substitute. He wasn't just a substitute to show us how to live. He would do something that we couldn't do. 
He would die as a penalty for what we do. We like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God caused the iniquity of us all to be laid upon him. That was written in 700 B.C. Well, after substitution, you have now the Godward effect of the cross. It is called propitiation. Paul said to the Romans, he is a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of justice. We get bugged whenever I forget what state is doing it, when they just give criminals a pass and they walk out. What state's that that we might ridicule them? Is it California? It just gives them a pass. Do we, do we call that mercy? That's not mercy. That's compromise. There's no propitiation. There's no satisfaction and vin, uh, vindic, vindication of the impugned law. And now we have led to antinomianism, to no law whatsoever. No, don't believe it. And ain't going to vote for them guys that do. All right. That is called propitiation, where you satisfy the wrath of a deity. The satisfaction, what did it have to be? Did Christ have to give up his arm? Did he have to give up his leg, his eye? He had to give up his blood because life is in the blood. When you have blood, you have life. And so he shed his blood for us. And it enabled a holy God and his hand of vengeance to now be able to extend his hand of mercy. Without the death of Christ, the mercy of God was impinged. A guy named Luther, I'm sorry, a guy named Erasmus said to Martin Luther, you believe that God cannot forgive unless there is a substitutionary death. He said, yes. Don't you think that that makes God too harsh. Because we don't forgive that way. We forgive not because we are holy. We forgive because we've been sinners. And we know what it is to sin. God doesn't forgive because he feels sorry, because he has been a sinner too. God forgives only because his righteousness has been propitiated, has been satisfied. Luther said back to Erasmus the humanist, I think you make God too human. God must have atonement for what happened. Atonement is a word that means at one to meet. Like a mediator, the two parties meet at one place. Question, what is the atonement? Christ. And that's where God and man come together at the peace table. And so, propitiation, it's the enabling of God to act in divine mercy because his justice has been avenged. Number eight is the sinward view of the cross. It is called redemption. Redemption means to buy, to redeem. Uh, redemption means to purchase. Romans 6, 23, the wage of sin, death. Someone must die. 
a very special someone, a God, man, perfect individual who can say right before his death, not my will, but thine be done. And one that the father can say twice, this is my beloved son in him. I am well pleased. That is why Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. While the demon said, he is the holy one uh, of Nazareth. That is why the thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. The executioner said, uh, this man is innocent. Pilate said six times, in him I find no guilt. Uh, I told you what, Judas, I have betrayed innocent blood. Everybody knew he was guiltless. And so redemption means that God through Christ could pay. There are four words in our New Testament for the word redemption. You know what an agora is? It's a marketplace. Uh, the fear of the marketplace is called uh, agoraphobia. If you ever know anybody that's afraid to get outside. The agora is where purchases were made. And so the word agorazo means that a purchase was made for our sin and we were freed by it. And then there was the word exagorazo that you pay for it and it's removed, never to be paid for again. Exagorazo, and that's used about us. He not only has died for us, but he need never die again. And then there is a word called luo, latruo, that means to loose, that you have bought it, you have removed it from sale, and now you've turned it loose to lead a new life. Uh, that word is used, latruo, our being freed. Back in the Civil War, Northern abolitionists would come down to Charleston. They would take slaves and they would pay the slave price. They would take them down from the block, tear up the writ, and say, you are free forever. And that is what our salvation is. We're free because of the payment. And then the other word, peri poio. What's peri mean? Perimeter means around. Peri poio, poema means a work. Peri poio is a work around. It's like you make something and you hold it to you. It's special to you. That word is used for us, that he has purchased for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So your salvation is God bought me, removed me, loosed me, embraced me. That's your salvation. Twice you are mine, God said. I made you and I bought you. And then we have a word that is called reconciliation. Propitiation is the God word. Redemption is the sin word. Reconciliation is the man word. Conciliate means to be at peace. Reconciliate, reconcile, means that two are at peace once again. The prodigal son, my father's sons or slaves have more than enough food. I will go home. And I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Make me a hired servant. The father saw him from a long way off and said, kill the fatted calf, put the ring on his finger, the robe on his back, the sandals on his feet. This son of mine was lost. And now he's been found. He was dead and has come to life. And they began to be merry. They partied. They were reconciled. 
The Greek word reconcile is the word kata lasso. Lasso means to change. Kata means to change back. It means we're restored back to where we were. All right. And so Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's called provisional reconciliation. Is there anybody that we can go to in this world and not say to them, come to Christ and he will forgive you? Is there anybody we can't say that to? No. Come to Christ. Because when we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. But to those who are reconciled, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so to those that have been reconciled, they have known now to be at peace with God once again. And so that is reconciliation. And now we go to nine points on once we have been called, once we have a body of truth, the divine penal substitute of our Lord Jesus that satisfied God, paid for our sin, and built a bridge from us to earth. Now that that has been accomplished, how do I get you from here to there? What happens? The first thing is called the hearing of the gospel. How many of y'all sat down and got saved because you sat down and started reasoning backward? Hmm. It would seem that a divine being would have to die. It would take a divine being to punish him. God must be in plurality, perhaps a trinity. To lead a perfect life, he would have to be a man. To be a perfect man, he'd have to be a God-man. He would have to enter humanity at birth. It'd have to be a virgin birth somewhere. Did y'all figure that out? No. Again, I made a seven on a genetics test. Do you think that I could figure out, I who made a D in first aid? Yeah. That I could think my way through to the Trinity, the atonement and justification by faith. No. Well, hearing the gospel comes like this. Peter said, you have been born again not of seed, like your father's seed, not of seed perishable, but imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. Do y'all remember how your grandpa looked before you buried him? He had run out of gas because he was born of his father, who was born of his father, went back to Adam and he died. And that's why we're dying, because we go back to Adam. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so all flesh is like grass. That's why your children need to enjoy about a three-year window, okay? Then they're going to become like us. And so there's a little window where you think you're going to escape, and then it starts eating on you. If you're a professional athlete... They have to draft your position by the time you're 27. Did you know that? If you're 27 years old, you are at the height of your physical prowess. Unless you're Tom Brady. Okay. But you're at the height of your prowess at 27. After that, you're going down. Who in here is 26? Anybody? 
Okay. Enjoy it. Because this awaits you. All right, yes. They drafted in my son's position when he hit the ancient age of 28. He retired. You can't be president till you're, what, 30-something? Yeah. But physically, you start going down. And that's what Peter said. You've been born again, not of your daddy's seed, because they die, but of the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God abides forever. We are born never to die again. And so that involves us getting in the presence of somebody that preached the gospel. Some people heard it. It went shallow. Persecution arose. They fell away. Some people, it was surrounded by the things of the world. It just became activity number 14 and bore no fruit. Some people, Satan picked it off. They forgot that they ever heard it. But some of us, it went deep. It got cleared out because it was the Father's land. And it bore great fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. That was you. And it was because of the husbandry of God. And so we hear the gospel. Uh, to, the unbel uh, to those who are perishing, uh, Christ is the weakness of God and the foolishness of God. But to we who are being saved, uh, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They will scorn what we delight in. And so we have the hearing of the gospel. The 11th thing is you go from an intellectual assent to trust. Faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. You're not saved by faith. You are saved by grace that is acquired by trusting. Faith is what you do when you can do nothing else. Faith is what you do when you need do nothing else. Faith is what you do when everything has been done for you. Amen? So granted the estate of man, granted the goodness of God, it stands to logic. You can only be saved by believing in what a higher power has done. And so we are saved by faith. That is the proper response to grace is faith. Um, faith, have you ever trusted a friend? That's faith. When you go to an airport, it's in a strange city, you don't know where you are, but you're not worried because your friend said, you'll be in at 12.06, have your phone on, I'm gonna call you and I'll be there at the curb. And so you don't worry because that friend is good to his word. You ever trusted a pharmacist that you're sick and he writes, your doctor writes a prescription that you can't read? And if you did, you could not pronounce. And if you could pronounce it, you wouldn't understand. Only God and that pharmacist knows what you're about to swallow. But you take it and you swallow it and go on your way. You trust that guy. It's been said, incidentally, that a pharmacist is the most trusted individual in the American communal life. Do you know that? You trust him. Just give it to me. I'll swallow it. Uh, you ever trusted a surgeon that you lay there on a gurney and beside you were stainless steel implements that were razor sharp? 
and uh, they were putting gloves so they wouldn't get any of their cooties on the inside of your open gaping wounds. Okay. And they said count backwards from 100. Now maybe you looked at that degree on the wall one last time. Okay. And then you went under and you know they were going to carve you, open you up. They were going to put you on an anesthetic that, you were, that the anesthesiologist had to be trained so that he knew where he would kill you or just put you out. Isn't that something? And so you start going under. I had an ACL done on my right knee by anybody remember Charles McAdams? We called him Mac the Knife, okay? Had big Coke bottle glasses. Yeah, hated to sew. Good surgeon, but he would just stitch you up like a football, all right? And so I remember him coming up after a sermon I preached. He goes, Tommy, I did a Rob Peter to pay Paul on you. Yes, sir, you did a tendon transplant. He says, are you walking straight? I said, yes, sir, I am. I've never had a problem with this right knee. And so I trusted him. And he took care of me. You ever trusted a lawyer? A lawyer is where you don't say nothing. He knows everything about law. And he becomes your ad voca. La voca. What's that? Your mouth. Vocalized to speech. An advocate speaks out while you sit silent and he pleads your case that you have not violated law, that you are righteous. And then God help you. You walk. Okay. If you know what it is to trust a doctor, lawyer, friend, or surgeon, that's what it means to trust Christ, where you rest completely on what he has done. And then you experience what is called imputation. That's where you take from somebody and you give it to somebody that didn't earn it. It's a Greek word that means to speak or to declare. Logizomai. And it means that your son calls you and says, I have no money. And because he's been in college for six days. Okay. I have no money. You go down and take $700 from your account. You say to the banker, transfer it from my money, gainfully earned by a hireable person, me, to my indigent child with no skills whatsoever. Gets up at the crack of noon every day. I want you to impute it. And that guy puts negative 700 plus 700 can that child write checks on that money? Will he write checks on that money before it clears? That is called imputation. I'm going to put it in. I'm going to legally declare it. You're not taking it. The guy in authority says that money's good as yours. That's what imputation means. It's a legal term. I will take from Christ and give to you. It's also a religious term of taking a robe and putting it on somebody else. You are clothed 
in Christ. Ain't that something? He gets all the glory, we get all the benefit. And that imputation declares us as justified. It's justified, never sinned. It's not just forgiveness, that's true, but this is a different facet on the gym. That I am now as good as I need to be. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? You have to be as good as God. You can't. Christ was. I'll take what I did. I'll give it to you. You take what you did, and you'll give it to me. And that is justification. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. They said that back, somebody get the phone. They said back in the um, uh, days of World War I, when the war was over, the, in the way of communication, the churches in America from the East Coast onward started ringing their bells. And it began all over the nation that the war was over. When we sing in church, what we're singing is that the war is over. Amen. We're at peace with God. That is justification. Give you another great illustration. There was a guy in uh, the Civil War who was a doctor in, I believe it was Maryland, maybe wrong, maybe Virginia, but he was a doctor, and his name was Dr. Mudd. He was the direct ancestor of Roger Mudd, the uh, commentator. And in the Civil War, there was a fellow named John Wilkes Booth who shot the president, leaped off the stage, caught his foot in the American flag, and broke his leg got away with his pals and took off, thinking he was going to come back to a South that was open arms to what he had done. They went out after him and looking for him, and they gave the strict command, don't kill him. We want to bring him back and propitiate law by what he did. And so they went out looking for him. A particular individual didn't take the command, and he shot him through the opening in a burning barn, he shot him. And uh, uh, the North was greatly irritated at that, and they needed a scapegoat. Guess who they found? Dr. Mudd. The doctor that was aiding and abetting a criminal. You set the man's leg. He said, number one, I didn't know who he was. They said, you had to have known him because John Wilkes Booth was the Brad Pitt of the day. He and his brother were the most famous actors. His father was a famous actor. He was passed down like the Fondas, all right? Everybody knows who he is. And he said, well, I didn't. Haven't you been to uh, Ford's Theater? Yes, I have. You didn't know that that was John Wilkes Booth? He said, no, I didn't. But it doesn't matter, he said. I still would have set his leg because I am a doctor. I took a Hippocratic oath and I end suffering wherever I find it. He said, if I were on a battlefield, I would treat the North and I would treat the South because I'm a doctor. So he said, no, I didn't know it, but it doesn't care because I'm a doctor and I had to be faithful to what I said I would do. They tried him and found him guilty. 
and they put him on Devil's Island, a prison. After enough time, they felt they had been propitiated. They offered him a pardon. He wouldn't take it. Because a pardon involves forgiveness. Forgiveness presupposes guilt. He said, no, I will not take a pardon. And it went for, I don't know how long that he would not take that pardon. Uh, they finally let him out just on conscience. They let him out. And uh, he still would not accept a pardon. Uh, he died not receiving a pardon. His family, in later days, presidents sought to make some points by giving him a pardon. The family would not accept the pardon and admit that he had been guilty. Until, in 1976, Jimmy Carter, uh, in kind of a, a uh, anniversary celebration, uh, justified Dr. Mudd that he had done no wrong and they struck his name for the record. So if you go back to look at the records of the trial of Dr. Mudd, you will not find him because it is justified never sent. And so that's what God did to you when you trusted him. There's more, but we're out of time. Don't die before the next time. And because I'm going to show you now What's going to happen on the other side? All right. Father in heaven, uh, the world is running out of time. We didn't know that. Otherwise, we would have fled the wrath of God. But you have been good and been merciful to us. Thank you. That you have overlooked the times of ignorance, and now you have commanded all men to repent, to turn from their pantheism, their dualism, their atheism, agnosticism, their deism, their polytheism and their idolatry, from their rationalism and their humanism and their secularism, and to trust the infinite personal God who is self-evident through creation, through the soul of man, and through the Bible. And you have caused them to repent and called them to, but they're not. But you have fixed a day in which you will judge the world through a man, a man in which you have furnished proof to all and that he is raised from the dead, to which we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Find a people that are steeped not in the fallibility of reason, but in the ironclad subsistency of the very Word of God, in whose name we pray, our Lord Jesus. Amen.